every entrepreneur has a story. Welcome to Happy Half Hour with an Entrepreneur, where each episode, your host, Brian Carney, will share a drink with a successful business owner and have them discuss their unique journey, gaining insight on what it takes to be an entrepreneur and different ways to get there. Brian isn't just a beer nerd, he's also the co-founder of River's Edge Advisors, a financial planning firm headquartered in Delaware, specializing in working with business owners. It's time to pour yourself a drink and enjoy a happy half hour with an entrepreneur. Welcome to Happy Half Hour with an Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Brian Carney. My guest today is Jen Groover. To say Jen is a serial entrepreneur is a pretty big understatement. In fact, Entrepreneur Magazine named her a leading serial entrepreneur. Her business background is so diverse. She's an inventor, an international speaker, a consultant, a coach, and the author of multiple books. So I'm really looking forward to talking to her today. For our conversation, I dug into the fridge and found a leftover beer from my vacation in Vermont. It's <laughs> Hello, My Name is Beer, and it's uh, from Mill River Brewing in St. Albans, Albans, Vermont, and it's called uh, The Most Crushable Lager. We'll find out about that. Jen, welcome. Welcome. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much. First of all, let's talk about what are you going to be drinking today? I am drinking what I'm typically drinking, Pinot Noir. Oh, Nice. Uh, Coppola, black oh. and um, if it's not that, it's White Claw. So I don't really stray far from those two <laughs> options. White Claw is uh, incredibly refreshing. Do you have a flavor? So most people have a flavor that they either love or hate. Where do you fall on that uh, on the White Claw spectrum? Uh, so I love the black cherry, the raspberry, and the lemon. Yeah, and I will really struggle if I have to drink the mango. Okay. All right. That's interesting. <laughs> I have, I have a friend who refuses to touch the grapefruit. So that's great. Oh, and the grapefruit too. Um, yeah. I would say that's like the orange starburst. Yeah, that's a great, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> yes. So let, let's jump in. So you have several different businesses. So did you always want to be an entrepreneur or did that, is it something that just sort of happened? Uh, it just sort of happened. I think that I was, I had a dysfunctional childhood, so I was left to my own devices. Yeah. Uh, so I had to be pretty adaptable and resilient and self-sufficient. And then um, my dad was a, an attorney and people would say to him all the time, why don't you become partners in this bigger practice? And he would always say, I don't want a bigger practice. I want to come and go as I please and not answer to anybody and not work on Fridays. And I was like, oh, that sounds, yeah. <laughs> that sounds great. That's what yeah. I want to do. So uh, I think there was a culmination of me being creative and kind of beating to my own drum yeah. and not being, I don't like to be told what to do either. Sure. Uh, and then learning that from my dad uh, that you could maybe not make for him, he would always say, I'd rather make less money as an independent attorney and not answer to anybody because my time freedom is really important. So I learned time freedom at a very young age and the value of that too. Yeah. Uh, so, and then when I graduated college, my degree was in psychology and education. My dad thought that when you get a degree in something, that's what you're supposed to do the rest of your life, which sure. was never my intention. I was going to use those platforms as tools, but I never had the desire of actually um, being a teacher, but I did do a little stint as a kindergarten teacher for half of the school year and affirmed to myself that was exactly not what I wanted to do. <laughs> That's a tough gig. That is a tough gig. 
God bless the people that have the patience to do it. Was yep. not me. I joke, <laughs> I joke that God gave me twins later in life to teach me the patience. <laughs> but um, I uh, was passionate about fitness. I, when I was in college, I started the group fitness program just out of desire of making everyone do it with me. Oh. And uh, I got the school to give me a bunch of steps and a boom box and a spot. And, and then I um, charged like $3 a class for everybody to come. And it was amazing. I Your loved first it. business was born. Yeah. So I didn't intend to do it. I had no sure. idea what I was actually doing. So when I was teaching, I was still doing fitness. I was um, teaching gyms all over, you know, in the nineties, that was really big. Yeah. Well, um, and then, uh, I was doing all these master classes and elevating that part of my abilities. And, and so when I quit that teaching life, my short stint in the teaching life, <laughs> uh, I became a business partner in a gym in Wilmington, Delaware. And, uh, and then I, um, became a national level fitness competitor and a master trainer uh, and traveled all over the world. That's awesome. Well, yeah. so I got to dive into that for a minute. So, you know, national fitness competitor. So how many times in a row for how many weeks in a row did you go and eat nothing but like chicken and broccoli? Uh, years. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, most of my 20s uh, was that uh, chicken and broccoli, chicken and yams yeah. uh, and shakes all day long. I mean, I, I overtrained. I my gym also had an aerobic studio. So I was teaching at other gyms as well as my gym and the gym was called the groove shop oh my name i, I like that <laughs> and, and um i would seriously teach i look back now i'm like what an idiot i would teach like six classes a day wow. every day um between boxing classes step classes <laughs> yoga classes um what are now would be hit classes yeah. like interval training and then I, when I was training my clients, I do workouts with them too, you know, kind of be like next to them doing push-ups or lunges. So uh, I got to a point where I got sick from overtraining and over-exercising and sure. not having enough nutrient diversity because of uh, such a lean diet. And yeah. um, it I guess there's a out. fine line between discipline and overdoing it, right? Yeah. And yeah. it's really dysfunctional in that sense because it seems so positive and productive what you're doing. Sure. And so people are rewarding you by affirmations like, wow, you're so disciplined. Wow, you look great. And, and so many people in that space at that time were destroying their bodies internally, yeah. um, myself included. So uh, I learned quickly in my um, late 20s that if you don't have your health, you have nothing. Yeah, good point. Very good point. Yeah. Um, so talk a little bit about, so you, you, when you go to your website, it talks about how your first big breakthrough was your invention. So tell a little bit about that and how you came up with the idea. Yeah. So my first invention of a tangible product was, uh, something called the Butler bag. And it was inspired by my twins who were newborns at the time and being an overwhelmed new mom, taking bag filled with stuff that you don't even need <laughs> yep. everywhere with me, just in case. Yep. Uh, one night I was in the grocery store standing in a uh, express line. And as I put my kids down to pay for my dinner, I can't find my credit card. People are behind me rolling their eyes. My kids begin simultaneously crying. Yep. And um, I'm no more anxious than that. Sweating. Yep. Like, oh my gosh, I'm holding up all these people. I dump my bag filled with stuff in front yep. of the cashier to find my credit card. And I couldn't believe that 
we as women accept a bucket for our back. Like it's literally a bucket. And so, um, as I left that evening from the grocery store, I was complaining in my head and my mom did something very good when I was a kid. She, she programmed us to, um, have a belief around complaining. You're not allowed to complain about something unless you back it up with a solution. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. It's really incredible hardwiring for a child. Um, because what she'd say to us is you're not allowed, you have no right to complain about something unless you're also stepping up with, and here's what we could do to solve the problem. Wow. That's, you know, it's like problem solving. That's ownership. That's everything. That's incredible. It is incredible hardwiring for your brain because what it does, it taught me to be an inventor. I mean, literally that's what it taught me to do. It taught me to be a problem solver. Like I don't have much patience for people who stay focused on the problem. I I say, okay, we have the problem. We see it. Now what are we doing to solve the problem? And uh, that's where a lot of companies struggle because so many times people say so focused and stuck on the problem and and complaining about it. They're not really getting on to the next part of the process, which is the solution. So that night when I was leaving the grocery store complaining, I was like, well, what could I do? I can't really draw very well. I'm not even a stick figure. I'm not an engineer. I can't imagine calling myself a designer. (laughs) (laughs) How am I solving this? problem. So, um, I went home that night and went back to my newborn overwhelmed twin mom life and planted the seed, but didn't know how it was going to be solved. And I think that's an important part of the process that everybody pays attention that you can plant a seed for yourself and in your subconscious mind, allow it the time to, uh, germinate and, and be solved in the right time. And an interesting thing happened from the time I left the grocery store until the time I solved the problem is, and this is in all the mindset training and all the mindset trainers I worked with at this time of my life is um, anytime you recognize a limitation within yourself Mm -hmm. and it brings frustration to you, you need to address the limitation in order to grow. So in this time in between, uh, I recognize a limitation I had was a significant fear of failure. Mm, Very common. Right. Yeah. So once you identify the fear, failure, fear of whatever it is, you have to identify then where did it come from? And is it really real? And then how do I flip it to to be something different? So we literally in in neuroscience, uh, you, you create new neural pathways in your brain. So when I think of a new belief, I then can identify that new belief and then strengthen my, that new belief by repetition. So my new belief was I have more fear of regret than I have a failure. Yeah. I was still going to fear things, right? Fear keeps us alive in many ways, but how do I use fear as fuel? Yeah. How do I allow it to like give me power? That's a great mental switch. It is. And we can do it with everything in life. I mean, yeah. any limitation we have, any outcome we have in our life right now that we don't like, there is 1 million percent a belief or beliefs attached that have to change in order for the outcome to change. Yeah. So is that, I guess this kind of leads into to the next part. So is that, you know, your coaching clients, is that some of the things that you focus on? What, what are the things that you help your, your clients with? 
Yeah. So, so you have to, uh, that's the first thing I dive into is the subconscious beliefs because they are the gateway to everything else. All of our greatness lies in that. And if you don't believe you're worthy and capable of having something, you're never going to get it anyway. So, so to that story, and I think this is where it it demonstrates that is I reprogrammed this new belief. I've more fear of regret than failure. Failure is just part of the process on the journey to success. So I changed my emotional relationship with it so then a few months later I was not even a few months like two months later I was unloading my dishwasher which I'd done since I was a child sure yeah (laughs) and I recognized that the answer to my problem was the dishwasher tray holding the utensils as I started taking the utensils out I was like wait a second so I want everything my handbag to be standing up straight, bird's eye view, yeah. took the dishwasher tray, stuck it in my handbag, and that became my first prototype. The point of this is- That's incredible. Thank you. Yeah. It's it's so simple, but it's, it's, it's so simple, but it's- Perfect. Mind blowing when you actually understand the construct of it. Yeah. Because I had unloaded my dishwasher my whole life. Sure. It was changing my brain and changing my relationships to fears to be able to see a different opportunity right in front of my face. When you change your brain, you change your perspective. You open up your eyes to different opportunities and how you view the world. And, and, and had I, had I even seen that before that time, I probably wouldn't have had the courage to move through that frightening process (laughs) to become successful at launching that company. That's pretty amazing. Thank you. It, it's simplicity is uh, what do they what, what's that saying that the uh, uh, necessity is the mother of invention that yes. couldn't be more perfect for that. Yeah. And the simplicity every you asked about me coaching. Yeah. Sorry. Every, yeah. Everybody wants it to be more difficult than it has to be. You, you know, it's, it's really interesting you say that I feel like the art of simplicity is kind of lost because if it's not super complicated and super fancy. Sometimes people aren't interested in it. They're like, well, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. But simple is is (laughs) the right way to go. Right. Yeah. For me, I have found the biggest quantum shifts in human behavior start from simplicity. And and I'll give you an example. Yeah. Uh, There's a client who I just, she actualized from our relationship yesterday. And that's my, my goal as a coach is to, so there's a difference between between therapy and coaching and consulting yeah. mindset, where as my degrees in therapy, I mean, in psychology, but I don't believe, I believe everyone could, could benefit from therapy. I believe the limitation in therapy is staying stuck, focusing on the problem and not moving into a mindset of actions to move past the problem. Yeah. So I always want my clients to actualize in a short period of time. And so this one client came to me because she felt stuck in life and uh, felt really unproductive and never in her life had a routine of discipline to be productive. Okay. And the first thing I made her do was start writing to-do lists in a, in a specific structure that I learned that our brain operates in a high functioning way from and learn how to cross off each thing on the list and feel a great sense of satisfaction, literally program her brain every time she crosses off, like, yes, achievement done. And like literally keep high-fiving herself along the way. And her transformation in the first week was so significant. She was like, it just seems like it's too easy. Yeah. 
And I'm like, but it is the most significant things are usually that simple, but we want to complicate everything that doesn't need to be complicated. Such a great point. Yeah, that really is true. So one of the things I, I, I we've talked about before on, on the show is that owners and type A business owners get to a point where they've chased an income figure their entire life and they get there and they feel no different. Have you experienced that as, as coaching some of your clients and how do you help people push through that? Yeah. So the the first question I ask in my, my book, the latest book, The More Method, is a question that I've come to find is one of the most powerful questions. Again, so simple. Yeah. What do you want more of? Mm. And, and so goal setters will usually go into their goals. And I'm like, no, this is different. This is different than your goals. What do you want more of? So most people say time and money, of course. Yep. And and I'll start asking, but why do you want the money? What, what is that a benefit to you? Yeah. Well, I want you know, to take care of my family. I want to send my kids to college. I want to travel. But then I keep peeling it back. And what I come to find out is they want more money to have a, a greater sense of security. So typically in a situation like the story I'm um, hypothetical I'm sharing is yeah. they didn't have money when they were a kid and they felt disappointed because they couldn't do things their friends did or they felt embarrassed because they didn't have the designer clothes their friends had. So their desire of money is really about safety, security, yeah. being able to have choices. So when you recognize the core root of your desire and you understand the power of the core root of the desire, it really isn't about the money anymore. Yeah. It's about the satisfaction and I feel safe. Yeah. I don't, I don't have that feeling of insecurity. I have this, this pride in the fact that I have choices. Yep. I can choose if I want to travel this week or not. Sure. And, and that brings a greater sense of fulfillment. Yeah. That's where, where people that achieve a lot and still feel unsatisfied to satisfied is because they're, thinking if I only have this more external thing when it's actually the internal things that they need to be focused on and grateful for in the process of, of whatever the next achievement is. So for me, having a dysfunctional childhood, one of my greatest achievements on an ongoing basis that I'm grateful for is inner peace. Yeah. So, and, and, and harmony in my own household, having things being calm. So I get to focus on the gratitude of that on a daily basis. Like grateful for this. I've created this life intentionally. So I'm not looking for something outside of myself to give me satisfaction. It's something in, internal. And that's what that simple question of what do you want more of yeah. in your life starts to really unfold for people. That's interesting. Cause so basically people are in search of money, but they really are in search of security and money is the conduit for them to get the security. Right. But they're not recognizing that they were yeah. searching and where the root of searching came from to then have appreciation. Like this feels so good. Yeah. I remember as a kid, like being afraid, they asked my parents for money because we might not have it. And then I couldn't go to the movies with my friends and it was right. so disappointing. Yeah. And, and now I don't have that feeling. Yeah. And it feels so good to not have that feeling. So you can appreciate where you are so much more for what the true desire is versus what the external ego wanted. A great point. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, so you bring up the book. So, you've written two books, right? Yes. So well, talk- actually, three. Three. But this, I started this other book called The uh, Operator's Manual for Life. And um, in the middle of finishing that, this 
book concept downloaded in the middle of the night with like a wide awake 3 a.m. Oh my God, this is, I need to do this next. Call my publisher the next day. I'm like, I woke up, complete clarity. I believe when you wake up with an idea, you got to go with it. That was like divine intervention. So this jumped ahead of the operator's manual and the operator's manual come next. That's great. So talk a little bit about your first book and how that evolved. And then, you know, talk a little bit more about the, the more method. I mean, obviously just, we talked about it, but talk about more about the book. So um, my first book transpired um, 2009. I launched it in 2010. Um, I had, had a lot of articles written about me in different magazines and showcased on different TV shows and agents came to me and uh, basically said, we believe you have a book in you. We've oh. heard you speak and you're always like teaching, trying to help others. So I look back and I feel like I was so young and so naive in the process. And the book was called What If and Why Not? And it was really about the psychological flips yeah. that you have to do in order to get from self-doubt, disbelief, why me to why not me? And um, the title came from uh, something I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs can relate to. When you first have an idea and you tell people and everyone tells you why it's not going to work. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so that's what happened to me with the Butler bag concept as I went on my little journey to try and get people in the fashion industry to believe in it. And everyone kept saying, women only want fashion. They don't want function. We've tried this. It's not going to work. And I learned something really powerful in that experience as I would defend my idea because people are conditioned to tell you why it's not going to work sure. versus why it will work. So as I would defend my idea, they would defend their stance. Yep. And so now you just have two egos trying to be right. Sure. Yeah. And so I remembered seeing something from Mark Burnett prior to that, around that time, where when he had pitched Survivor, uh, everyone in the industry said no, why it wasn't gonna work. And he went to Les Moonves of uh, CBS three times. And if the first two times Les said no, on the third time, he took a different approach. He sent him a cover of Time Magazine with Les and Mark self-imposed in the front of it, holding a Grammy together. And the title says survivor Ch changes the face of television. Wow. I mean, an Emmy. And, yeah. um, and so, uh, what it did to less was it was the power of suggestion. What if it did change the face of television? That's I say now that's a great story. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. So, that story hit me in the one of my last pitch meetings. And I was like, well, I'm going to do with less did. Yeah. So I said to the guy who was saying, no, what if, just what if, just entertain this crazy thought for one second, what if it actually worked and you had a chance to be a part of it and you say no, and your competitor says yes, then how do you feel? Yeah, that's, that's great. Changes the entire power dynamic. Yeah. And, and so for me, he, wound up being my first big business partner in that. And uh, that question, what if, and why not changed everything. And so I learned to ask that question a lot more. And um, I also learned asking questions is often incredibly powerful in any type of pitch or dynamic, but, um, or when you're trying to get someone to see a different point of view. Yeah. Um, but so what if and why not came uh, to really kind of teach that mindset of 
what's possible. And just because everybody else says it can't work doesn't mean it won't work. And um, the most important person you have to get over is yourself. Very true. Very true. Those self-limiting beliefs or something. It it is, it's, you make a really interesting point because I've experienced it in my life where you go to someone and you say, I'm going to do this with my career, or I'm going to take this job, or I'm going to do this. And they go, you should never do that. You go, well, 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 this is why. And it becomes, you're right. It becomes an ego, but you really have to keep pushing through. And most successful entrepreneurs will just constantly keep betting on themselves so that, you know, anytime you can bet on yourself, it's usually a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. But if you're a new entrepreneur or you've been through an experience that kind of rattled you a little bit, you really need to get clear on that thought process before you go back in or else, even if you have an amazing idea, you're probably going to self-sabotage because the beliefs are in alignment with the desires and, um, and and you're going to always question yourself. And the biggest thing I learned too is, and I know your personality is like this as well. People bet, on the conviction of the jockey, not necessarily the horse. Yeah. And you come in with confidence and conviction. Then most people will buy into you and not even really know what they're buying into product wise. Great point. Service wise. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So obviously you do a lot of speaking. Mm -hmm. So you have all these lines of business in in your Groover empire, if you will. What's yeah. your favorite, or is it, or is it like having kids where you like some more than others certain periods of time? So where does speaking fit into that? Do you like that more than you like writing, or do you like coaching more than speaking? How's that work? First and foremost, speaking. Yeah, no, it's my high. Yeah, it's, I mean, I'd say twenty twenty was tough um, uh, yeah. because I lost a part of that part of me that I've been doing for twenty plus years. So yep. um, while I could do it virtually. It's not even close to the same as standing on a stage and feeling the energy of people. And, and, and I'm really into quantum physics and energy and feeling that energy and putting out that energy and seeing other people connect around that energy. So, um, I had come home from Asia. I was doing a book tour in Asia, uh, and March 7th, I came home and I um, went away to a wedding in Mexico a few days later and came back March 17th and everything was just shut down and I had over 150 speaking engagements and appearances canceled for the rest of the year or changed to virtual. But again, as much as virtual has allowed us to keep moving, uh, it's not the same. So definitely not the same. Yeah. No. So coaching is too, um, just differently. It's a different energy coaching can be a little bit more of a energy drainer mm-hmm. um, where speaking is literally like high yeah. uh, because you're sometimes lifting people at first yep. um, and, and where you're lifting them more than they can actually lift themselves. Sure. And I always want to see people succeed. So the coaching I love because you can one-to-one see the breakthroughs or doing coaching in a group. I can see the breakthroughs. I can see the transformation and that's, really rewarding too, because as a speaker, I don't get to necessarily see that. I see people and I leave, you know, and true. Yeah. And and so it feels good to see that. Or even, you know, as a speaker, I have people reach out to me on Facebook or Instagram and say, I saw you speak seven years ago and it changed my life. And I'm like, that is so fun. That's amazing. That has to feel amazing. And, And as a speaker, maybe I'm, overstating this a little bit, but I feel like Ted talks are sort of like 
the Holy Grail, if you will. Mm -hmm. And you've gotten to do that. What was that experience like? Hard. (laughs) (laughs) Really hard. I like to freestyle. I always have very clear idea of what I'm teaching and what I'm saying, but I storytell a lot and I'll rift in my storytelling. Yeah. And when you have 12 minutes to make a case, because that's exactly what we're doing as a a TED Talk, you're making a case. Every word, every soundbite is linked together to the next one. And you have to memorize it. And I don't like memorizing because then I feel like I get out of my heart and into my head. And I don't... I feel like your personality gets drained in that. Yes. So um, (laughs) the first one, I was so nervous. God, I was so nervous. So I was for the second one too, but it was obviously anything you do a second time is easier. But the time frame used to be 15, now it's 12. Um, And so when you finish though, something that scares the daylights out of you like that. um, and, And why it's so scary too, is it's being videoed yeah, and you're not in control of the editor. So the editor can leave your mistakes in there if they want. Hopefully sure. they don't, but you have no say in it at all. So um, when you're done that though, your growth of who you are is exponential. Yeah. That, so you've done two of them. Yep. So I was supposed to do another one um, when COVID hit that got yeah. postponed. Um, but so the third one I will be doing in the near future that one is about um, femininity and power. So really about how and why women haven't, women haven't evolved as, as quickly as we would imagine that they have uh, in business and in their bottom lines uh-huh. uh, and what the beliefs are around that and um, understanding to try to stop duplicating masculine energy and actually step more into the feminine energy and emotionally connect to our goals versus um, mentally only connecting to the goal. So men can actually do this better where they connect to the goal and there's this ego part that becomes very competitive that they want to do it. Women don't typically operate the same way uh, where we need to feel and again, these are generalizations on, on gender, but typically women need to be emotionally connected to it yeah. for a greater good than themselves. So it has to affect their community. It has to affect uh, their children. There yeah. has to be more of a mission connected to it that makes greater impact for them to feel that it's not self-serving to do it. Yeah. Um, so the, the TED Talk is on that topic. That's great. Um, so I can't, I still can't get over 150 cancels speaking engagements. That's actually crazy, but yes, someone with your background, someone with your personality is probably pretty optimistic. So has there been any positives that you can take out of COVID the whole COVID situation? Yeah. So the, the entire time I, I knew the only way to stay, uh, growing and thriving is to stay optimistic. So, um, you know, I, I was grateful for the time to slow down, to spend more time with my kids. Yeah. How uh, old are they, by the way? They're 16 now. Okay. Uh, I, uh, I appreciated, as much as I love traveling, and gosh, I miss it so much, <laughs> um, it did feel good to slow down and be more present and not feel as 
I mean, prior to that, my schedule was literally like flying by the seat of my pants all day sure. long, like in and out, dropping this one off, and picking that one up and going to this meeting. Yeah. Uh, and then I also created the, the screen company. Uh, you see the screen behind me. So uh, that was something I created out of it. And um, I have an apparel, um, uh, a, a Be More Apparel line that's launching right now. So I kept creating. Yeah. Um, I definitely felt less motivated. I didn't like that part of it. Yep. Um, you know, when everything went to a screeching halt, it was almost like, how do you like gain bearing of all this? Um, and as much as I even work from home, I should be, you know, used to it. it. It was just less of a, less of this. I'm the kid that I was the kid that would write the paper the night before. Yeah. Me too. Yep. Best performance. percent. <laughs> yeah. So I need deadlines and I need that pressure to yep. really thrive. So, um, that's the one part I didn't like is I felt a little less, um, motivated than I normally do. Cause I have less of a pressure cooker schedule. <laughs> I, I kept saying that every day during quarantine felt like Tuesday, like yeah. it felt like a Tuesday, like uh, it's another Tuesday that it's just felt the same. Yeah. Um, one thing I want to talk to you about is Thusio, your involvement in the company Thusio. Yep. So uh, for those who don't know, Thusio is a really cool concept that was created where they create events. They mm -hmm. were alive with yeah. professional athletes. So I was a part of Thusio, enjoyed it. I think I still am uh, when it goes, but I know it's a lot of virtual, but I haven't participated in those. Um, you know, I've met Alan Iverson, Donovan McNabb, Terrell Owens, um, Chad Ochocinco. Uh, you know, I've met all of them. So Tiki Barber created it. Yes. Um, how did you get involved and what's your role with it? So I got involved because at that time period, one of the advisors, uh, this investor from Philly, I went to him because of another company he was involved in, um, which was a platform that really connected musicians and venues and um, agents all together. Yeah. And I wanted to use that platform, skin that platform for speakers. So I went to him and I said, Hey, could you talk to the founders and see if they wouldn't mind like white labeling it for me? And they were in hyper growth mode at that time. So he said, you know, John, I don't think you're going to have as much of their attention as you would like. So this other platform that's similar started by Tiki Barber might be a better fit for you because Thusio was a marketplace at first. Yeah. I, I didn't know. Yeah. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Yeah. So it was a marketplace at first and, and the, the party started, all the events started randomly because of a Super Bowl party done, uh, uh -huh. when, when the Super Bowl was in New York. So I went to, to Tiki and, and Jared and pitched my idea. And then they were like, well, what, what are you going to do with it? And, and I said, well, um, you know, I, I want to do the same thing you're doing for athletes that uh, for speakers. And then Tiki said, well, what if we want to do that later? And I said, well, then at that point, you'll be chasing me. And I know you're fast. And he thought it was really <laughs> funny. <laughs> but I'll be ahead of you. Yeah. So he, they liked my um, charisma and my tenacity. Sure, no and doubt. basically said, well, why don't you come and help us here? And then we'll add that in later. And so that's kind of how it happened. And uh, it was very like, just going with it because it was a new company when I first got involved and 
we had the New York chapter. And then I said, well, this could work in Philly. And then Jared's like, well, then go do it in Philly, Jen. So that's when I, you know, met you guys and started the Philly chapter. And uh, now it's more of a passive advisor uh, now because of all the funding that was um, done. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I forgot about that. A great internal team and, and the people that always were supposed to be advisors could actually just act as advisors. So the companies had to pivot a lot during this, um, but there's great, great success in, believe it or not, I'm still in all of this, but planning virtual events for other people. Yeah. So, um, we just did a really cool wine tasting not that long ago with, um, French laundry and, uh, that was a lot of fun. So it's really getting creative and innovative in the format so that people, even though it's virtual are feeling engaged and feeling special. It, it is amazing to see the success of so many companies being able to pivot during this time saying, all right, well, you know, we're totally going virtual and now we're going to help people build virtual events when their whole makeup was launching in different cities and they were really starting to explode in, in those live events. Yes. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about is your website actually says, and I quote, Groover's energy never ends. So <laughs> how are you always able to keep uh, that energy level up, you know, how, how are you able to always stay on it and stay, stay up? So a couple of reasons I do highly value quality sleep. I used to have that mindset, like I don't have time to sleep. And then I realized when you don't have time for high quality sleep, you struggle being awake. Yes. Um, so I value high quality sleep. Um, I eat like an athlete in business. So I don't eat anything that's going to make me tired during work day. Yeah. And I eat small portions because digestion takes a lot of energy. Uh, I meditate using binaural beats, which change your brain wave frequency. Um, so it's kind of like a biohack, a brain hack, because yeah. the thought of actually getting into a state, like you see monks and other meditators of just like complete Zen. And I'm always like, tell me they're really not thinking anything. Like really, <laughs> seriously. Uh, and, and I just do a ton of gratitude. I find when I'm not in a state of being grateful, I don't feel as energized. So makes sense when you stay in a place of, of gratitude and doing stuff like this gives me a ton of energy. Yeah. I do a class later on tonight, uh, that from seven 30 to nine. And by the time we're all done, we're, we're all messaging each other on, uh, Facebook saying how wide awake we are. It's like one o'clock because we just feed off the energy. So, hopped up. so yeah. So I recognize that I feed off of energy from other people too. And I, yeah. I don't, I think it's a counterintuitive for a lot of people where they try to isolate themselves or don't realize that isolating themselves and being disconnected really can bring our energy down. Yeah. Um, so when I personally have certain people that if I'm feeling not as energized or disconnected, they're the people I call. Cause I just feed right off of their energy. Yeah. That- Absolutely. You know, the interesting thing to sort of wrap this up, the interesting thing I see about about your situation is your parents instilled in you. So first of all, your dad is an attorney and attorneys are sort of, I'm going to generalize here, but they're sort of always taught go to be partner, get bigger, bigger, more, more hours, more hours, more hours. And your dad was able to step back and say, that's not what this life is about. You know, work smarter, not necessarily harder and enjoy yes. your time freedom. And then you have your mom who said, if you're going to complain, come up with a solution. And now 
you're able to be completely grateful, I would say, in large part to some of that, that you always are focusing on what you have and not necessarily what you don't and, and complaining. I find that pretty interesting in the, in the way that you have been shaped in your life. It is. It's fascinating. And they, you know, the funniest thing, and I, I don't think, I don't know how intentional, um, I mean, I'm sure what my mom was saying was intentional because she didn't want me complaining, yeah. <laughs> but, um, my mom had an advocate mindset. Um, she ran campaigns for politicians. Uh, she had a TV show that basically put politicians on the hot seat saying we voted for you for this and you didn't do it. So what's going to happen? Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> she was a brassy, sassy Brooklyn, New York lady. Yeah. Um, so I sat, I, I think probably the biggest thing that shaped my childhood and I didn't like it at the time, but, um, was sitting in those studios after school every day, listening to my mom interview, not just the politicians, but she'd have athletes on the show all the time too. Tug McGraw, Steve Carlton, yeah. uh, Ron Jaworski. And, and her family friend that was like an uncle to her was Vince Lombardi. Oh, wow. So she was always obsessed with greatness. What sure. makes somebody great? And I now believe looking back, even though I, don't think I was actually paying attention to those conversations. <laughs> Subconsciously, I completely was. And I think they were truly shaping my view of the world. And um, at a very young age, you know, even in college with the fitness business, I, I didn't like mediocre. Yeah. It didn't feel good to me. So I always was striving for something that was closer to greatness. That's awesome. And you've obviously achieved that. So that's great. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed our conversation. It always nice to catch up over Likewise. and talk to you. Cheers. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about Jen's business or to buy her books or book a consulting meeting, please go to her website at jengrover.com. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, Jen. Thanks so much. It. Have a great night. You too. Thank you for listening to Happy Half Hour with an Entrepreneur, sponsored by Rivers Edge Advisors. For more information on how Rivers Edge Advisors can help you, visit their website at riversedgeadvisors.com. If you'd like to connect with Brian Carney for business advice or just to share a beer, follow him on Instagram at riversedgeadvisors underscore LLC.